0: Well, good morning. Good to be with you here uh, today. If, uh, if you guys have your uh, bullets in there with you, there's been something that I have been forgetting to announce for several weeks. So it has been repeated in the bulletin in several weeks now. Uh, and that's just uh, announcing uh, publicly that uh, Jacob Ansel, uh, who's up here singing uh, right now and he's sitting over here on my uh, right. Uh, Jacob, could you raise your hand? Uh, he is now our... Uh, our director of uh, youth ministry. So he's been helping me uh, oversee. Yeah, no, we uh, we appreciate all that uh, Jacob has been doing uh, with the youth students, and just wanted to to make it official in terms of his position as the uh, the youth director. And Jacob, we appreciate you. So. Uh, if you uh, have your Bibles, please open up with me to, uh, to John chapter 5. and You can put maybe your, your bulletin there in John 5. We're going to be there really briefly, and then we're going to uh, be, be bouncing around a little, little bit in the Old Testament uh, this morning. But uh, you're turning there to John 5, uh, when, when I was growing up, there were, there were certain lessons that were really difficult for me to learn uh, as a boy. Uh, and I typically had to be uh, disciplined for the same behavior multiple times uh, before uh, the lesson really sunk in. Am I the only person that had that uh, struggle? Uh, I'm assuming not. Uh, but I remember one time when I was about six or seven years old that I would uh, was going down the, the street regularly to play uh, with my one neighborhood friend uh, there. And uh, my mom had told me very clearly that I could play anywhere on the the front of the houses on our block, but I was not to go into anyone's house. Uh, but uh, my friend repeatedly—guess what—he always wanted to do. He wanted to play video games in his house. And faced with this constant decision uh, of whether to uh, to listen to my friend or listen to my mom, uh, being a, a seven-year-old, uh, guess which one I chose. I regularly chose to listen to my friend and I would get caught in his house playing video games when my mom said I was supposed to be playing outside. Uh, I think it finally took me being grounded for two weeks, which when you're seven feels like an eternity, right, Uh, of not being able to go outside and play, that that, that lesson finally sunk in. Uh, We've all had similar lessons uh, that were difficult for us to learn, Uh, and. Which makes us ask that question, why is it on on some areas, some matters, why are we such slow learners? Why why does it take us so long to learn certain lessons? Uh, And then when, usually when there are really severe uh, consequences for our actions, then the the lesson really sinks in, uh, and then what do we have a tendency of doing? Once that lesson is learned, uh, we we swing clear over to the other side, uh, and we, we tend to make the opposite error. Uh, we, we become this pendulum swinging back and forth to avoid one error. We we fall into another one. Uh, and what's really dangerous is that uh, oftentimes what we swing and swinging away from one thing, we swing towards something that is equally dangerous, uh, but it doesn't initially seem that way. Sometimes the, what we are swinging towards and choosing to do to avoid one evil seems a little bit more righteous uh, than another option. Uh, and that can get us into some serious trouble. And that's what we're going to to see a little bit of uh, in uh, John chapter 5, or more in in the background to John chapter 5. And I guess the the question that I want to look at this morning is, how do we keep from swinging back and forth? How do we keep from being these these pendulums that are constantly uh, changing our convictions and moving uh, one way and then uh, another? Uh, And the answer is found here in John 5. And last week we... When I introduced uh, the first few verses, uh, we saw that John 5 really is a, a single chapter uh, that tells a, a story, a, a courtroom drama uh, about Jesus healing uh, a man uh, who was lame for 38 years. Now, We looked at that last week, uh, verses 1 through the, the first part of verse 9. And uh, that's going to be the, the supposed charge or the supposed crime that Jesus commits, that he healed on the Sabbath And then what we're going to look at this morning, the second half of verse 9 through verse 15, is really going to be the investigation of the Jewish leaders into that supposed crime. Uh, And then in the the weeks to come, we'll look at verses 16 through 18, which tell us of the charges that the Jewish leaders bring against Jesus, uh, which were twofold. That he was breaking the Sabbath on a regular basis and that he, claiming to be the Son of God, was making himself equal to God. And then verses 19 through 47 tell us about the defense that Jesus makes before the Jewish leaders who were accusing Him and uh, making these charges against Him. But... Uh what I want to look at this morning, just verses uh, 9 through 15, as we look at this, this is going to be the aftermath of Jesus healing this lame man. Uh, and the aftermath, uh, the investigation of that supposed crime is going to, to pull back the curtain into uh, the lives of the Pharisees and their religious system. Okay? And what we're going to see this morning in the course of this investigation into what Jesus did in healing this man is, is really the, the character and nature of the Jewish leaders and the religious system in which they operate. Okay, let's, let's read these verses, but I want to kind of get a running start into them. So we'll begin in verse 1 of, of John chapter 5, and we'll read through verse 15. It says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool... When the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. And he answered them, The man who healed me... That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away. And told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And as we look at this today, this portion of the the investigation into Jesus's supposed crime of, of breaking the Sabbath, we're going to see this religious system now that I'm going to re- refer to frequently as uh, apostate Judaism. Uh, it's going to be really important to keep in mind that that Judaism that we see during the time of Jesus is not equal to Old Testament worship. What the the Pharisees were teaching Israel at that time is not uh, what was instructed. It's not the the faith, it's not the worship that was taught by Moses and the prophets in the Old Testament. It is something completely different. Uh, And what we're going to see in this false religious system uh, is uh, just the the character of any false religious system. And it's going to be really important because uh, in our modern church, there are many uh, so-called Christian churches that are masquerading uh, as uh, following Christ, but they are really uh, a false religious system. Uh, They are really following man-made traditions. They're really following uh, their own rules and regulations rather than following Christ. Uh, And that is what we will see uh, this morning as we look at uh, what characterizes uh, the nature of false religion. Now, what are these characteristics? Uh, How can we identify uh, a church or uh, a leader, uh, a denomination that's masquerading uh, as a true church when they're really not? Well, as we study our passage this morning, we're going to see these four fundamental flaws uh, that that are going to mark out and characterize uh, a false uh, religious system, uh, a false religion. Uh, and as we as we study this today and we look carefully uh at God's word and if we also look honestly at our own hearts we're going to we're going to see these characteristics these fatal flaws of of false uh religion we're going to see them probably in other churches that we may have visited or heard of or been familiar with in the past but if we're really honest with ourselves we will we will see hints of these in our own lives hints of these uh symptoms these these fatal flaws of a false religion. And that's what we will look at. And, and the first of these fatal flaws is going to be seen in that that last phrase of verse 9. It's a very uh, short phrase, but it, it's powerful. Now that day was the Sabbath. And what that is going to, to show us, the significance of that, and this first fundamental flaw, is that by departing from God's Word, false religion establishes a wrong standard by departing from God's word false religion establishes a wrong standard see we read that phrase now that day was the sabbath and it doesn't mean much to us but any uh, any jewish uh, reader in the first century who who read that little phrase after just having uh, read that jesus healed on the sabbath and that he told somebody to get up carry something and walk on the sabbath they would immediately be thinking and saying to themselves, oh no, there there is drama ahead. Because the background to the Sabbath is important for us to understand. So I want to backtrack a little bit and look at the the Sabbath in the Old Testament. The Sabbath was given to Israel back in Exodus 31, and it was given as a sign of Israel's covenant with God. In the same way that... uh, God made a a covenant with Noah and then he gave him a sign to remind him that God would be true to his covenant. What was the sign that God gave to Noah? Talk to me. Rainbow. Okay. Uh, So we're familiar with that sign, but the sign of the the covenant that God made between uh, himself and Israel, a a conditional covenant, that God had certain responsibilities and the people of Israel had certain responsibilities. The only covenant in Scripture that works that way. uh, It's a bilateral covenant. Uh, And the reminder of that, the sign of the covenant, was the Sabbath. So the nation of Israel had a weekly reminder that they are in a special covenant relationship with God. Uh, And that day was supposed to be a day of rest. Exodus 31.13 says this, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. And it was intended to be uh, a day of rest and refreshment for the nation of Israel. Uh, And the weekly Sabbath would have been a constant reminder to the people that they were in a covenant relationship. But there was also something that was called a Sabbath year uh, in which Israel, every seven years, was called to not plant anything or to give the land a rest. Uh, And now think about that. How much trust would that take in God? Okay, God, we're not going to plant this year. We're going to trust that you will provide for us uh, and that you will provide an abundant harvest the year before uh, and so we'll be able to eat for this whole year as we give the land a rest. Uh, and that Sabbath year was very important, but over the course of Israel's history, they they never were faithful in observing that Sabbath year. Uh, and so ultimately as uh their. Faithfulness to their covenant with God was demonstrated by remembering this sign. They never remember the Sabbath year. It's very clear that they broke God's covenant. In addition to that, they were guilty of idolatry and not following other parts of the law. And ultimately, they were judged and taken into exile. And they were taken into exile for 70 years. But do you know why it was 70 years and not 65 or 75 or 130? They were taken into exile for 70 years because they had missed 70 Sabbath years. And so the 70-year exile is God saying, "Hey, Hey, nation of Israel, you didn't give my land the rest that I called you to give it. And because you didn't give it to the land, I'm going to make sure the land gets it. I'm going to send you elsewhere to Babylon. And I'm going to make sure that nobody comes and settles this land for 70 years. That in and of itself seems to be a miracle. That God would keep the land empty for 70 years while Israel is uh, in exile and then he brings them back to it. And during the, the return from exile, uh, led by uh, three, there were three different returns. The second one was led by Ezra the priest. Uh, and what's remarkable, as the Jews returned from the exile, the lesson had finally sunk in. 70 years abroad will do that to you, right? For me, it took two weeks of grounding (laughs) to understand, okay, don't go in someone else's house. Uh, For them, it took 70 years in Babylon to understand what they were being called to. And the lesson finally sunk in. So when they come back from exile, they are cured from their idolatry. They're like, we're not going to do that anymore. And they are also very, very convinced that they now need to keep the Sabbath. They understand that that was the sign of their covenant with the Lord, and they say, hey, we are going to obey all that God has commanded of us. And so Ezra the priest comes back and and leads the second return and and zealously works to teach the law of God to the people of Israel, which is a good thing, and it's much needed. And when Ezra was sent back to the land by the, the Persian king, he was sent to, in essence, establish some type of a government there. Uh, And uh, Ezra chapter 7 verses 25 and 26 says this, the words uh, of the king to Ezra and you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of God and those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. So that this new state of Israel that, that Ezra was commissioned to, to go back and, and establish by Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, was to be run by the priests. Uh, and so in essence you have the, the temple, which is the new capital building, of this new state of Israel. You have the law of Moses, which is going to be the constitution of Israel. And you have the high priest, who is going to be the highest official in the land. The highest Jewish official. There is also a Persian governor. And it was more than likely during this time that the Sanhedrin was formed. This this body of 70 people. Uh, Jewish elders who would rule uh, the nation religiously. And it was also during this time that the synagogue system was established to teach the Israelites the law of God. Now, this was important for them to, to develop some type of a system uh, to teach the word of God to the people of Israel because something happened uh, when they were living in Babylon for 70 years. Uh, and it's a normal thing that would take place, uh, is that they learned the language of the land. So the, the Israelites depart from Israel, they go to Babylon, and they learn Aramaic. And their children learn Ar- Aramaic. And so when they return from exile, guess what the only language they speak is? Aramaic. But the, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. So now Ezra has an issue. He's got to teach a uh, Hebrew law to people who only speak Aramaic. And Nehemiah eight eight says that... uh Ezra and the other teachers of the law, they read from the book, from the law of God, and clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And giving the sense is the idea of translating it, uh, explaining what it meant, because the people only understood Aramaic. And so, because of this language barrier, what what gradually took place is there was a, a, a deviation, a movement away from studying the written word of God to studying an oral tradition as taught by the rabbis in the synagogues. Uh, And and this is where the the trouble begins uh, because they they have moved onward from the Word of God. They have departed from that and they have begun to depend upon the teaching of men. Uh, And this is what's going to be taking place in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah at the return of the exile. And then uh, there's going to be the, the beginning... Uh, stirrings of issues with the Sabbath. If you guys have your Bibles, turn back with me to, to Nehemiah chapter thirteen. It's going to be uh, what we. Here we have uh, the Jewish leaders filling up or filling in what God had left blank. See, when God had commanded Israel on the Sabbath of, hey, you shall not work, He He gave them some guidelines, some definition for what work consisted of, but He didn't give an exhaustive definition. He, he didn't fully define what all it meant uh, to, to work on the Sabbath. And, and so... Uh, the Jewish leaders, as issues began to present themselves, they began to make these codes of things that you could or could not do. And the beginning of that is seen here in Nehemiah chapter 13. If, you, if you're there, look with me at verse 15. It says, "...in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain, and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day." And I warned them on the day when they sold food. And Tyrians also who lived in the city and brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? And now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath? Again, the Israelites had had learned that lesson. So Nehemiah the governor is saying, Guys, you're really doing this again? We got into so much trouble for this. So look at what they began to do. Verse 19, As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodging outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So in their zeal to guard the Sabbath, they they swung too far to the other side. They did that pendulum swing, not understanding that that the other extreme that they were swinging to would ultimately be just as dangerous as the one that they were trying to avoid. And they began to go beyond what God had said because they were worried about falling into some of those same past sins. So how far did the Jewish leaders go in establishing standards for the Sabbath. We saw the the beginnings of it here. But during the time of of Jesus' day, during the time of the first century, when anybody who read, now that was the Sabbath, this is the context that would come to their mind. This is how one scholar explains it. At the beginning of the Sabbath, on, on sunset on Friday, would be announced by three trumpet blasts from the temple and synagogue, And the Sabbath began on sunset on Friday and ended at sunset on Saturday. And by sunset on Friday, all of your food for the next day had to be prepared. All your vessels washed, all your lights kindled, and all your tools laid aside. Moses had said, you shall not do any work. But the rabbis, out of that simple command, they made a system of 39 works, which... uh, could render the offender subject to stoning by death. So Moses had said, hey, don't work on the Sabbath. And they say, okay, well, let's get specific. Let's make these 39 categories. And of these 39 categories, then there were subcategories. They called the top categories father works, and then the lower categories descendant works. Uh, And so some of those father works, one of them was plowing. Uh, And so uh, you weren't supposed to, to plow on the Sabbath day. You weren't supposed to go out and plow your field. But then underneath that category of plowing, they got so into the minutia that they said that under that category, it was also digging. Uh, and because digging was outlawed on the Sabbath, it was forbidden to draw a chair along the ground because that chair leg might dig a, a rut in the ground. And you would be guilty of breaking the Sabbath. Another one of those father works was carrying a burden. Uh, And and the smaller line items under that category would be uh, wearing false teeth on the Sabbath. Because if you did that, you were carrying something. Other uh, uh, prohibitions in that category were walking on stilts uh, or wearing an additional garment that was unneeded. Or uh, a tailor, someone who... Who who and makes uh, suits of clothing. A tailor was forbidden from carrying his needle on a Sabbath and a scribe from carrying his pen because that was considered to be a burden. And among uh, another category of reaping and harvesting, the the uh, sub-prohibitions on that would be plucking a, a head of grain or plucking a gray hair. So they actually uh, discouraged uh, women from looking in the mirror on the Sabbath because they, what they, might they be tempted to do if they saw a gray hair? Might be tempted to pluck it out. And they said, that's, that's reaping. That's harvesting. You're, you're, you're plucking out. It's a little bit extreme, right? And so you can imagine, if you were one of the common people in Israel, and this is the religious system that, that rules over everything. That is all encompassing in your world. These are the standards that you are held to. And what's what's so sad is all of it began when the leaders departed from the Word of God. And you know they, they even departed with good intentions and, and you can write this down that good intentions are never the, the measurement of what is true. There are a lot of things that are done with good intentions, but they're still wrong. And they can still lead you into error. Case in point, what we are speaking about right now, desire to to zealously guard the Sabbath and to keep it holy, had turned into really a a system of enslaving the, the people of Israel. Imagine living in fear of dragging a chair across the ground might cause a a divot, uh, of not being able to to look in the mirror. All of these things, again, the Judaism of Jesus' day is not Old Testament worship. Because Jesus had nothing but strong words of condemnation uh, for uh, the Pharisees and their religious system. Nothing but strong words of condemnation. Uh, And they completely misunderstood what the Sabbath was intended to be. If you turn over to, to Mark chapter 2, a very clear passage uh, in, in showing that that the religious leaders of Israel fundamentally misunderstood what the, the Sabbath uh, was for. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. So again, if, under the, the, the rabbis' laws and all of these things, they're, he's, they're, he's breaking a subcategory of their man-made standard. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him how he entered the house of God and in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. See, the the religious leaders began to to act as if man had been created for the very purpose of celebrating this holy day every single week. And that that holy day was to be lifted up and exalted, and and that's the purpose for our existence. But Jesus says, no, no, no. The Sabbath was intended to be a day of rest and refreshment. It was intended to be a a day to help the poor and the oppressed in Israel. Right? Because uh, there's this tendency... For the rich to push, push, and push the poor into working more, more, and more. But a forced day of rest from all labor would be a help and a blessing to the poor in Israel. But the religious leaders had taken that forced day of rest and made it a tool of enslavement. They had turned it into a tool of oppression. And and that's really what happens when any leader, when any church, when any denomination, when any movement departs from scripture as the final authority. Because when you depart from scripture as the final authority, what are you going to replace it with? Something else. You have to have some type of authority and you're going to replace it with man's authority, whether they acknowledge that or not. And sometimes the man made regulations that you replace God's word with are simply just a a misunderstanding of God's word. Sometimes it's a, uh, yeah, I didn't quite understand this, so I'm doing this a little bit wrong. Sometimes it's intentional, and sometimes it's unintentional, that misunderstanding. And where they they add to what God has said. And at other times, when human reason is really the final authority for an individual or for a church, rather than, than adding to God's Word, they slowly begin to negate God's Word. They slowly begin to to take away and say, well, you don't need to worry about that. You don't have to abide by uh, that teaching or that command in Scripture. And I understand there's a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Mount that anybody who relaxes one of these commands is going to be worthy of a severe judgment. And such a religion that that little by little negates the commands of God, is, is still creating a type of bondage. Because the, the bondage comes when, uh, if, if they're loosing the commands of God, if they're negating God's commands, the bondage comes when, uh, what are they calling everybody else to do as well? To negate those same commands. And if you don't negate the commands that they negate, then you're going to be oppressed. You're going to feel the wrath of that re- false religious system. But within all of this, our foundation must be the Word of God. We have to remain rooted and built up in what Christ has said in His written Word, and we can't go beyond that. What God has made black and white, we need to call black and white, and what God has made gray, we need to call gray. We can't transpose any of those. But we have to stand firm on the Word and not add to it. Otherwise, we replace it with a different and a wrong standard. That's the the first fundamental flaw that begins any false religion under the in the guise of Christianity. The, the second fundamental flaw that we'll see is that by emphasizing rule keeping, false religion extinguishes a love for others. And this is going to be seen in verses ten through thirteen, back in John chapter five. And so the Jews Speaking of the Jewish leaders, the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Now what's, what's amazing there is that you have uh, the Jewish leaders. Now when they, when they see this man who has just been healed, they see him carrying his, his straw mattress down the road. And what do they immediately do? They they become the the police and say, hey, whoa, wait a second, buddy. They confront him. Say, you are breaking the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to do this. And the man says, well, the person who healed me said that I could kind of plays that authority card. Well, so, so-and-so told me that I could. And it seems like anybody who has the authority and the power to heal could also have the authority to say you can, you can carry your mattress on the Sabbath, right? So that's, that seems reasonable. But, but notice the, the Jewish leader's response to that. When he says, hey, the, the person who healed me told me to do this. They didn't say, oh, you've been healed. That's awesome. Praise the Lord that you've been healed. That, that's just amazing. Tell me more about that. But the Jewish leaders they don't say that. What do they say? They so say, who is this man? Tell me, tell me, who is this man that told you to pick up your bed and walk? They're more focused upon the rules. They're man-made regulations that are being broken And they are in rejoicing that this man was healed. No no concern for people, no love in rejoicing at what has taken place. They're they're focused on all of the, the wrong things, all of the small things. As Jesus said, as He condemned them for in Matthew 23, He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And these you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. The biggest concern for the Pharisees, the religious leaders, was that that which mattered least in the eyes of the Old Testament. Jesus says, hey, you're, you're tithing out your spices, but you're missing the big picture. And that's what we see here, that they are so concerned about this man carrying a mattress on the Sabbath, but they're not concerned with the fact that he was just healed, that a miracle had been performed. And that is always what, what happens when, when we zone in on the smallest of uh, details, when we zone in on the, on the minutia, we focus on that. Uh, and as we focus more and more on those smaller matters, what happens to our love for other people? It gradually gets extinguished and it gradually goes out because we begin to judge and evaluate people based upon whether or not they're doing those small things. I remember, uh, as a, as a kid growing up in San Diego, my dad would, would sometimes take my sister and I to, uh, Padre's uh, baseball game. And in one of those games, uh, I was ready with my, with my glove. Anybody ever bring a baseball glove to a baseball game? Uh, And what are you you hoping for if you bring your glove? A foul ball. You're like, please, just let a foul ball come my way. Uh, And uh, so I'm there with my glove, ready on the off chance that a foul ball comes my way. And there was a foul ball that's hit, and it's coming towards me. And I'm like, okay... uh, you know, for that split second, I think I have a chance at this one. No, it's, it's going to go off to my left a little, just a, a few uh, seats down and, I, and I'm not going to have a chance at it. Uh, and so I, I was following the ball's trajectory and then I say, oh, I can't get it. So I, I looked down and my dad's seat is empty. Uh, and, I, and then I locate my dad and he is barreling down our row, uh, tracking that foul ball. Uh, and then he, he gets the foul ball, uh, and he comes back, uh, to our seat and my eyes are just enormous. <laughs> and he's like, what's wrong? I'm like, dad, like, look behind you. Uh, and he looks back and there's like spilled drinks and hats are on the ground and there's a lady bent over holding her nose. Uh, and, uh, he, he just zoned in on that foul ball. Right? He didn't see anything else he, he locked on and then he just moved to, to meet that ball and didn't realize all of the the carnage that was a result right but but here's the key that that is exactly what takes place when we when we lock on to the wrong thing, we create all of this carnage and we don't quite realize it until afterwards and then, and then we turn around and you're like, oh. Why are all of these people in my life hurt because you, you've you 've been abusing them because you've you 've been using your own standard and you 've been beating them with it and this is this is the mark of false religion, but again if we 're really honest with ourselves, we begin to see little ways in which we are guilty of this, the ways when we commit the same fundamental flaws, focusing in on the minutia and forgetting the big picture that God has called us to love Him first and foremost. And then just below that, to love others, love our neighbors as ourselves. And anywhere we see, anywhere there is an emphasizing of, of man-made regulations. whenever the focus is upon rule-keeping, there will be carnage that extinguishes a love for other people. Out of either fear or or pride, the rules become the focus. You do anything to keep those rules. And anybody who who breaks those rules, you need to make an example of, and that again, that is this is the religious system in Israel at this time and if we're really honest if we look at the the landscape of the American church this is this is how many churches function and operate this is one of the the biggest errors one of the the fundamental flaws one of the easiest ways to identify churches and leaders masquerading as Christian here in America they establish their own man-made regulations going beyond what God's Word has said, and then they begin to judge everybody else for it. Again, and, and I always make this distinction. The last couple of weeks I've been talking about this quite a bit uh, with youth students and leadership community and things, but uh, it is not wrong to say, hey, if this is what God has commanded here, it is not wrong for me to say, because I know myself and I want to guard my heart, i'm gonna i'm gonna build this personal fence around hey here's what god has said because i don't want to be tempted into to sinning against god i'm going to build this fence around what god has commanded and i'm going to to guard my heart against that that's okay for me to do what what becomes an issue is when i begin to treat that fence that i have built as the standard for everybody else right uh, that's when it becomes, oh, my own rule and regulation, above and beyond what God has said. Uh, I'm going to begin to condemn other people for that. And that's, that's what many churches, many individuals do. And again, we, we do that all the time in our heart. When people don't meet our expectations, usually our unspoken expectations, we become angry with them, upset with them. And our own standard has become the highest authority in those instances. That's what has become clear here in John chapter 5. The religious leaders have departed from God's Word and they have established their own rules for the Sabbath. And because they have done that, their, their love for their fellow man is being slowly extinguished. So there is no care, no concern. And they immediately confront this man and interrogate him as to why he's he isn't meeting their standard. Then leads to the... The third fundamental flaw of false religion that we see here is in verse 14. This flaw is that by failing to address the heart, false religion offers no hope for change. Verse 14 Because afterwards Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So later on... Uh, Jesus meets up with him, and Jesus, after performing his healing, immediately slipped into the crowd, which you can understand why he would do that. Because, again, uh, the scene that was laid for us in the first part of this chapter is that what is surrounding the pool of Bethesda is a massive crowd of people who are sick and and invalid. And if word gets out uh, that that Jesus is there, what is every single person there going to want? Healing. Jesus has a, he chose not to do that at that point in time but he removed himself drifted off into the crowd and so that the man didn't know who he was but Jesus found him in the temple complex later and he addresses him he says Sit, hey you're well now and he and then he gives him a command of sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the implication is that the man had been suffering this illness as a result of sin in his life. And again, this is not to say that uh, most, uh, or definitely not all, or even most sin is is a result of, uh, m- most illness is a result of sin. That is not the case. Uh, but it says, in this case, this man was sick be- because of his sin. And as we saw last week, what we... This man has this conversation with Jesus, and there were probably more words exchanged than just this, right, as they meet in the temple. And more, more words than just, hey, stop stop sinning so nothing worse happens. But ultimately what happens is the, the man departs and goes back and, and informs the Jews. And what that shows us, what that tells us, is, is this man has no desire... To follow Jesus. He he is happy in the religious system that he has been in his entire life. And he's happy just to to maintain the status quo. But But within that status quo, there is no hope for change. Which is why Jesus warns him, Hey, be sure not to go back to the exact same thing that got you into trouble. And it's inevitable that this man strayed back into his sin. And, and well, how do I know that? Because... Rules and regulations have no power to change the heart. Colossians 2 uh, says that these, speaking of man-made regulations, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no, are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, if you ask any, any parent, rules are helpful, Right? and it it helps to to manage your child's behavior uh, to limit it, but only for a time because again, any parent when you give your child rules, does that change their heart? You're like, no, I give them rules and then they immediately want to break those rules don't touch that. what do they want to do? They immediately want to go and touch that you think of think of this also do do the the laws passed in our city or in our state or in our nation do that transform your heart no There was just a if you guys haven't heard there was a a recent uh bill or uh, ban passed by the, the city council here in meridian making it illegal uh to have your phone in your hand while in a traffic lane so be warned uh, but does that transform your hearts just knowing that that law exists no because when you when you have that alert on your phone what do you still want to do even while you're driving well, who is it? What is, what's happening? Right? Uh, that, that new ban doesn't change your heart. It just defines what is right and what is wrong. You can also just think back to uh, Prohibition years in, in the early 20th century when, when alcohol was outlawed in America. And, and that really fixed everything, right? <laughs> right? And w- what happened during the years of Prohibition? yeah bootleggers made a fortune uh speakeasies uh you know these secret underground bars where alcohol was sold and all of these things so again did that did that uh outlawing of alcohol change america's hearts no it just drove sin underground and the reason that external laws are are not able to to bring about any change of the heart is because the heart is really where the, the central core of the matter begins and where it, where it rests and where it lies. Mark chapter 7, uh, Jesus in another confrontation with the religious leaders about uh, rites of purification. You know, the re- religious leaders come up and say, hey, you and your disciples didn't wash your hands correctly. And Jesus says, look, guys, it's really not dirt that defiles a person. You really want to know what defiles a person is what comes out of their heart. Not the the dirt that comes onto your body, but it's what comes out of your mouth, what comes out of your heart that defiles a person. And there is no false religion that is really going to provide any hope for change because all false religion does is address the external. They they set up their man-made rules and their man-made regulations. They say, hey, do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But none of those rules and regulations will change who you are on the inside. Only the Word of God and only the Spirit of God is able to address the real issues. And so really there's no hope for this man. He goes back to that religious system that offered him no hope. Even again after seeing Jesus, after speaking with him, after being healed by Jesus, he still has no desire for him a sobering, sobering example that we see in his response. Uh, and within that, of we know that we can have hope. We place our faith and trust in Christ, that by the power of the Word of God and the Spirit of God, we are able to change. Amen? Well, we are able to have that hope. We are not those of a false religion that says, well, I, well however I am, I'm just going to be this way. No, we have hope and we have the power for change. But false religion has no such hope to offer. That's the the third fundamental flaw of false religion that we see. And then the, the last one, found in verse 15, that by elevating religious leaders, false religion eclipses the fear of God. Verse 15, that the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And you you read that, and what question naturally comes to mind? Why? Why would you do that? Really, a a single-word answer. Fear. Because he, he, he knew that because he had broken the Sabbath, right, he had been caught carrying a burden on the Sabbath. And he was afraid of these religious leaders because of the authority that they had and the, these religious leaders really carried way too much authority. We see it later on in, in John chapter 9. Again, John chapter 9 and John chapter 5 are, are two chapters that are intended to be compared. If you ch- turn over a couple pages to John 9, verse 18, the man who was born blind and healed by Jesus, and the, the Jews are in the process of investigating, verse 18 says, they did. the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man, Who had received his sight, and and asked him, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, We know this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. And look at verse 22, this parenthetical statement. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said he is of age, ask him. There, there is a fear among the entire populace in Israel of these religious leaders. Because these religious leaders have the power to put somebody out of the synagogue, to excommunicate them, to, to say, hey, you're no longer a part." And, and that wouldn't just be like, hey, uh, that would be much more significant because the, the synagogue was the, the center of, of Jewish identity. It's the center of Jewish culture. It's like being put into exile in your own hometown. They get out of here. So the the people feared this, and all of this because the power, the the exaltation of these religious leaders had replaced the idea that the people, rather than fearing man, rather than fearing the religious leaders, they needed to fear God. So this man who had been healed was willing to, to do or say anything to get back into their good graces. To earn his way back in, so to speak. Of, hey, you guys asked me who, who healed me. and I didn't know, but now I know. So, can I be back on your good side? Can I Can I come back in? And false religious systems always place too much authority in the hands of the leaders. Because the final authority lies with man, who do the people begin to fear? The leaders. They begin to fear people rather than fearing God. Uh, and... When leaders have that power, everybody else is walking on eggshells, which I might point out that in, in Matthew 18, as Jesus is speaking about establishing the church and how you, uh, if somebody is an unrepentant sin, how do you remove that person from fellowship? The authority does not lie with an individual, with the leaders. Who does the authority lie with? With the, the church. It says you tell it to the church and the church comes and says okay we're going to call this person to repentance so again of the the authority lies elsewhere in the christian church Uh, but because uh, of the authority of these jewish leaders they in essence their whole system promoted a fear of man rather than what it should have been of fearing the lord fearing god regardless of what man does and there's countless places in scripture that call us to fear god But understanding these as the the characteristics of a a false religious system, a system that is going to enslave people, a system that is going to be abused by its leaders. Those four fundamental flaws of misunderstanding or departing from God's word, establishing a wrong standard, emphasizing rule-keeping and extinguishing love for others, failing to address the heart and having no... uh, offer of hope and exalting religious leaders and ultimately that eclipsing the fear of God as I mentioned each of us can be guilty of these sins this isn't just something to look at all of these other churches say oh they're guilty of that but we're all guilty of this sometimes we, we adjust God's standard just a little bit right Sometimes we relax it. Sometimes we tighten it. We go beyond what God has said. And as we do that, we've departed. We're thinking about this. When we do that, when we say, hey, here's what God has said, but here's what I'm going to do. We have just made a religion of our own making. Hey, this is my my personal religion. My personal belief is this, and this is what I'm going to act out. That's a false religious system. Sometimes we emphasize our standards a little too much. And the result is that we extinguish our love for other people. We become more concerned uh, with maybe our own hobby horses or things that we deem to be most important. And we lose sight of loving God and loving others. Other times we feel hopeless in our own sin, in uh, our, our own false religious system, and it serves to condemn us. Because we feel hopeless in our sin. There may be that particular habit or certain response to temptation that we continue to indulge. We feel like there is no hope. And usually, when we haven't been able to change, it's because we have been trying to change, not in the strength of the Spirit or according to the wisdom of God's Word, but just in our own understanding, saying, hey, I'm just not going to do this anymore. Or I know what I'll do this time different. And so, at other times, we elevate other people to a place where you fear their opinion rather than fearing God. You may not fear a religious leader, but it, when you when you begin to to try and please other people, and that's your your main focus rather than than striving and seeking to to fear worship and obey God, you're you guilty of idolatry and, and guilty of fearing man more than. God. So, what is the, the solution to all this? We, we've seen the, the fundamental flaws of, of false religion. We also see within these points what true religion work looks like. You just kind of look at the, the opposites, the, the contrapositive, so to speak, of those four points. That if false religion is established on something other than God's word, true religion is going to be established firmly and only upon God's word, rather than the teaching of man. The true religion is going to be concerned for people, not merely the blind obedience to rules. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. True religion isn't about keeping all of these small rules. It's about loving God and loving your neighbor. True religion offers hope for change because it addresses the heart And the power of the Spirit according to the Word of God. True religion encourages a fear of the Lord that leads to humble worship. Those are the solutions. Those are the the remedies that we need to apply to our own heart as we see areas in our life that we have become guilty of, of changing or adjusting God's Word or where our exaltation of these small, minute commands has extinguished our love for others we need to see this this false religion and be grieved by it but also learn from it and see how we are guilty of the same temptations that the pharisees gave into so many years ago amen looking at ourselves honestly humbly and as we do that may our goal be to worship god in spirit and in truth putting on those marks of true religion and shunning those marks of a false religious system.